0: Good morning, Grace Point, and welcome. Uh, Welcome to a room full of mistake makers. All right, I hope that you have recognized that uh, about yourself and ourselves, that uh, we are pretty good at making mistakes. And even in a series on mistakes, I have found that I can even make a mistake uh, by having somebody like Brett Ferguson speak for me last week. And talk about me and portray me as a big fat chicken. Uh, I mean, can you believe that? I do CrossFit and and yet he calls me a big fat chicken. If anything, he should have done. He should have at least put up a a, a bird that was more muscular. And maybe they 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 have a picture of that. That's that's what I hope I would look like uh, if 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 you were to call me a chicken. Um, no. Anyway, Brett did a great job. Uh, presenting a tough passage, and I did check it out. I did have another assignment, but uh, I was glad to yield that passage to him. Uh, a powerful passage, as we have been uh, talking about mistakes. And just in review, what have we been talking about? Please, as you enter into this series, you can talk, take about it from a very very minute, micro-level mistake-making kind of thing, like I made a mistake on my taxes, I made a mistake here or there. We're not doing that level of mistake thinking. We are thinking deeper. We're going deeper to a core issues of mistake, foundationals, issues that mistake. If we get these wrong, then there's going to be a whole lot of other mistakes that ripple out of this. The very first mistake that we talked about was the mistake of misplaced priorities, getting our priorities out of shuffle, out of order from what they really should be. And the first message in Malachi, be finding the book of Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament. And uh, we looked at the mistake of having your priorities out. And then we tried to say, okay, if you're going to get your priorities in order, what needs to be number one? Because the first domino will trigger into the other dominoes. And the first domino in your priorities has got to be Christ. And, and he even said it, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, Matthew six thirty three, And everything else is going to come together. Everything else is going to be there. Now, I mean not everything you want, but everything else is going to fit together, okay, as you progress through life. So misplaced priorities, number one. Number two, living a life of drudgery. You only got one of these babies, and this is not a dress rehearsal, all right? And so if you're going to live your life, don't live it with drudgery. And we talked about that, and I mean, Brett talked about that so well in the whole concept of What, again, laying down that first reality in the very first words in Malachi are this, I have loved you. And if you don't key in on that, if you don't key in on the fact that God loves you and that is the motivation for everything else in life, if you don't lay that one down, then you're going to miss it. And faith is going to become religion, religion is going to become duty, and duty is going to become drudgery. And nobody wants to live a life of drudgery. And so hopefully, again, start back with the love relationship. Don't live without that. Get that nailed down. Are you walking, living, breathing, functioning in this love relationship with God? Now, we're going to turn the corner today. We're going to talk about another one. It's going to come a little closer to home. It's going to be real personal. We're going to talk about Marriage. Now you may be young and not married and you may be old and formerly married or or, or what I don't there's all kinds of on the spectrum in here. And whether you are raising teenagers and or you've got this married gig thing figured out, help somebody else, pour into someone else, help their marriage get stronger, and then also help the next generation do it well because what I'm seeing right now it's not shaping up to good. And if we don't get it right, we're going to see our entire society crumble in the area of the family, and we have got to get that one right. Just to lay some foundation out here, I want us to embrace, and I think most people do, believers and unbelievers alike. Well, maybe not unbelievers, but I think most people would believe that marriage is a gift from God. It's a precious gift from God. He has given it. He designed it. He got it perfected in the perfect world, in a world where there was no sin. He gave this as the very first gift he gave to man and woman. He gave them marriage. Told them how to do it. Told them how it should function, how it should operate in this beautiful union. And we're going to spend some time in a few moments really kind of unpacking that even some more. But just to embrace that. And I would dare say, Anybody who gets married in a church, in a synagogue, or wherever you get married, there has to be something in there that I believe that God has something to do with this in bringing us together. We found Mr. Right. This is the one. They were the right one. They were the wrong one. We use phrases like that all the time as if God has a plan. So let's stick with that, figure out what His plan is, and let's hang on to it. And I believe it. In fact, Proverbs chapter 18, verse 22 says it like this. He who finds a wife finds a good thing. Now, if you just stop right there, you could just have a secular humanistic moment where, okay, I, I scored. My match.com worked. My eHarmony account paid off. You know, it worked. I got, I got a good one, all right? She's a trophy wife or, or, or he's a sugar daddy or whatever you want to put on him. Uh, you know, so you, you've got him, and, and you found a good thing. But now look at the next phrase. And obtains favor from the Lord. That sugar daddy, that whatever you want to call it, your, your your trophy wife, whatever, you, you know, that's from God. That is a gift to you from God. That person is a beautiful part of God's design for your life. You think, man, I'm looking at my marriage right now. It doesn't look so beautiful. It doesn't look like God's design. That's because we messed it up. <laughs> it's not because he messed it up. Because, again, you go back to his original design. He's got a pretty good plan in place. He's got a pretty good processes in place. He's got pretty good principles in place. What we do with what He gives us is a different thing, which then makes me force another statement into the statement on marriage. Marriage is a precious gift from God, but it's also a rare, rare and precious gift. Not rare because there's a few marriages, but it's rare because there's few good marriages. You've all heard the statistic that one in every two marriages is in a divorce. 50% of marriages are in divorce. We're not going to unpack a lot of that. I heard that all my time growing up and dating and, and preparing for marriage and what have you. And, and, um, and then I read a statistic early on. I can't even find it today, but I still remember it. Even early on when I was not even married, I read this, that of the marriages that in, half ended in divorce, of those marriages came out by focus on the family, they said of the marriages that do make it, the majority of them do not live in intimacy with one another. Do not live whole with one another. Do not grow with one another. They just merely exist. That's not how God designed it. It's not His plan for it. And in a society where it's easy to have starter homes and starter jobs, and literally, I read from one psychologist who says, now we have starter marriages. A starter job is when you enter into the career force and you think, okay, this is my first career, but uh, my first job, but I don't know that I'm going to be here for the rest of my life. Or you get your first home, but it's not your dream home one of these days. But we have this kind of mentality, you know, I'm going to try this relationship out. If it doesn't work, we can maybe move on with a little, little damage done. We kind of jump into it haphazardly. So here's the third mistake that you never want to make. We've talked about two of them. Here's the third one. Taking your marriage for granted. Taking your marriage for granted. If you're holding, listen, listen, listen. If you're holding a precious and rare gift from God, treating that as some common, cheap something is a taking your marriage for granted. We need to see our marriage as a precious and rare gift from God and not some cheap, common something out there. Because that's exactly what we will do. And so many people will go into, well, I'm going to give 50%. If they'll give 50%, then we're going to have 100% marriage. And that's the reality. That that, that math stinks. 50 and 50 cancel each other out. There are some times in your marriage that you may not have 50% to give. And if you're waiting for the other person to give the 50% and you're you're going to cash in when they cash in, you're going to give when they give, you're going to ante up when they ante up, sometimes it requires 100% of you. And 100% of you. When that other person's beat down, wore out, can't give anything, because of maybe circumstances of their own world, their own life, their own whatever, I'm not, I'm not making excuses for that person. But there are going to be times when you, the pendulum's going to swing the other way, when you're going to be beat down, wore out, and you're going to have nothing left to give, and you're going to need that other person to give 100%. But So if we will make this commitment that I'm going to give, and you're going to give 100% of you 100% of the time that you can give yourself, then that is the way that we're going to be committed to each other. If I'm giving 100% of myself 100% of the time, and you're giving 100% of yourself 100% of the time, then we can have, this can work, we can make this work. But again, we've reduced it to common and cheap. Which one of these pictures best describes your marriage? Here's the first one. A dollar menu hamburger from McDonald's. When do you go to McDonald's? You don't go to McDonald's because you want a healthy meal. I'm sorry if you're a franchise owner or I'm going to dog on you for a minute. Um, You know, you see the dollar menu, it's cheap. You, you go through the drive through because you, you see the golden arches and it just draws. It's like a magnet. It just draws you in. And, and, and you go in. And I don't even think I have the dollar menu anymore. It's the value menu or whatever. but well, whatever. It's worth about a dollar or less. And, and so you, you're going to go in and you're going to get that dollar menu package deal. And this is what it's going to kind of basically come out looking like. Now, it's going to be hot for a few moments and it's going to be fresh if you want to call that fresh and you're going to eat it and then you're going to uh well anyway what happens next is personal uh so you're going to go through that have any has anybody in this room ever eaten a day old or two day old hamburger from mcdonald's raise your hand and you still live to tell about it okay okay So some of y'all have, it's mainly the guys that uh, it's not moving, it's meat, I'll eat it. You know, and so they they just grab it and eat it. You know, this whole idea of marriage being cheap and common, drive through hot for a while, she's hot, he's hot, then she cools off, she did not taste good, not good. I want to cash her in. Listen to what Frank Pittman said about marriage. Every marriage is a disappointment. Everyone who marries expects to be adored, pampered, served, or supported in style. They expect their status to rise. They expect the world to envy them. They expect to live happily ever after. When it doesn't happen, they're disappointed. They pout, they cheat, or they fight, and they make life even more less wonderful. What's your marriage like? Is it like that or is it like this? Is it like a, a, a steak from Ruth Chris where it's been... Hand selected. It's been taken care of. It's been cured. It's been nurtured. It's it, it's uh, they even let the the cow sleep on a bed of hay or you know whatever they make sure it's grass fed and and they do all these things to make this this meat for you that is going to be served on a five hundred degree plate so the very last bite is just as good as the first bite and you have all this prep and all this serving up of this amazing meal. Lori and I love to go to Ruth's Chris when somebody's paying for it and and enjoy it but it's not cheap we may go once a year because it's so expensive but man we lick the plate because everything on there costs something take the silverware with us too but we figure we paid for it so you have these two different models is it cheap and is it common is it something that's just a hamburger in the back seat of the car that you left over from yesterday or is it something that you will literally lick the plate you're going to savor each bite. You're going, to, you're going to consume it and dream about it the next time you go to it. I hope the latter is more than the first. Guys, let me speak to you for just a moment. I'll speak to you because Paul speaks to you in Colossians chapter 3, verse 19. He says, Husbands, love your wives. I love my wife. I love my wife. No, love your wives. And do not be harsh. With them. Now, I'm not saying, ladies, you're weak and you can't handle it, but let me just say this. Men, you need to hold your wife in a very special kind of way. You don't need to treat her harshly, you don't need to speak words. And it goes both ways. I know it. This could be written to, to women, as uh, wives. Wives, love your husbands. I, I get that. But see what happens is we get in these, these fights. You stay, the longer you're married, the more you get the goods on them. You more you know what buttons to push and what to call and what to point out. And you get in there and you can dive into that. Into that wound, into that pain, into that vulnerability. And you can literally tear down with a single statement. Something that they will remember for the rest of their life. Here's another verse for us, Proverbs four eight: Cherish her, and she will exalt you. Notice the how how it works. You cherish, she will exalt. Embrace her, and she will honor you. See, it, it is. I will say this. I'm going to put it on the men. You want to be the leader of your home? You want to be the man of your own castle? You want to kind of rule the roost? Well, here's how you do it. Be the person who cherishes. Be the person who embraces. Be the person who initiates the love. Be that person and then watch her. You want to be the king? Treat her like a princess and see what happens. Now, Now, gals, let me say something to you. Throw us a bone every now and then. We're not very good, okay? But give us an A for effort. Give us something in the idea of affirming. I know I'm not good at this. And and if I'm speaking my love language and Lori has a different love language, it's it gets really hard because I'm trying to say I love you and she's not hearing it. And I need to say I love you in her love language. And there's so many dynamics to this. But the whole idea here is that, guys, we're going to set the temperature. We're going to set how the, the home is going to be, how much love and cherishment. And ladies, get in there and be a part of that love and that embrace. Take the book of Malachi and let's look at it. This is not a hard shift because we're going to find a nation that is struggling with the concept of marriage and what it is and how it's going to function and, and the way to do it well and, and what have you. And we're going to come to verse 10 in Malachi uh, chapter 2. And we're going to see three rhetorical questions here. And I'm going to point them out, and then we're going to come back to it real quickly and, and, and brief it. But you'll notice the rhetorical questions lead into the main question. He's just building. So let's look at them. Verse 1, first question. Have we not all one Father? Second question. Has not one God created us? Why then, as a result of answering the first two questions well, why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Circle the word covenant. It's going to be a very important word in understanding this whole thing. Judah has been faithless, an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves and has married the daughter of a foreign God. We'll come back there. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendants of the man who does uh, this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. Now what's going to happen? When marriage becomes a mistake, it's going to start driving a wedge not only between the married couple, but it's also going to drive a wedge between you and your relationship with God. So the response to this broken covenant relationship marriage over here is that now we're going to see and look at this next verse and the second thing you do you cover the Lord's altars with tears and weeping and groaning because no longer because He no longer regards the offering or accepts it with a favor from your hand. You want to hurt your relationship with God? Have a bad marriage. Treat your wife harshly. Let's keep going. But you say, why does this, why does he not? Because the Lord was a witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you, this is, he's going to mention the wife of your youth two times, and to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion, circle the word companion, and your wife by covenant, circle, circle the word covenant. Did he not make them one with a Portion of the spirit in their union. And what was the one God uh, and what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring? So guard yourselves in your spirit, and let none of you be faithless to your wife of your youth. Second time he uses it. Other translations it says, Don't act treacherously with the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife, but divorces her. Says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence and says the Lord of hosts. So, application point, guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. We have two rhetorical questions that kick this off. Who's your father? Who's your daddy? Have you not all one father uh, has not God created us? So this whole idea of a relationship thing here, this whole idea of this rhetorical question going back and forth, it ends up landing on the last question because there's a father out there, because God created you. Listen, there's a covenant thing going on here. There's an agreement with God going on here. This whole thing that you call marriage is not just between you. It's not just linear. It is between you and the other person and God. God's a part of the equation. And yet, you become faithless, you profane God's name. Literally, your marriage is a reflection to God and of God. What does your marriage look like when it's a mistake? How does it get there? I want you to jot these three things down. First one, you say, Well, okay, I can't, I, it doesn't mean, mean anything to me. Well, well it might, because it might mean you training your children, it might mean you walk, walking with your grandchildren. When your grandchildren will quit listening to the parents, but they will still listen to the grandparents. There's a, there's a part to play in this, in the next generation. Number one, date poorly. I'm not going to begin to go into the 5th century B.C. in this post-exalic Judaism and try to unpack what courtship looked like. We have different courtship in America. We have different courtship among Christians. We have different courtships among cultures of this world. I, I, I'm not even going to unpack all of that, but there's something that happens whenever you go from I'm going to marry you to I marry you. And what if we backed up here before we said I do and we said, will I, should I, should I be with you? Moses kind of puts that out there. He says it in Exodus chapter 34, Numbers 25, Deuteronomy 7. He gives directions and clarity in what it means to marry and who you should marry and not marry. He kind of gives us some 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 guidelines. Solomon knew that he he was a great wise king. But Solomon had this fetish. He liked women. Now that's not the fetish. He liked foreign women. It's what the Bible says. First Kings chapter 11, verse 1 says it like this. Solomon loved many foreign women. And then it goes on. From the nations concerning which the Lord, the God, the one who created marriage, said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall you, they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart. Turn away your heart after their God. That's a a pretty big thing. Jesus said, I mean, God says in His Word, He said, listen, don't do this, don't do this because, He was very specific, if you do this, your heart will not be with me anymore. What does Solomon do? Where does Solomon take this advice from God? Solomon clung to these in love. He had a problem. His love for women, foreign women, was greater than his love for god now listen this is not anything about interracial marriages this is not anything about somebody marrying somebody on the other side of the world this is not anything at all the issue the real issue in play here as you look back at verse 11 if you look there with me he says that they were they were which he who loves and has married the daughter of a foreign god so you are marrying people who believe in god differently than you The issue is not race. The issue is not ethnicity. The issue is not culture. The issue is where are they spiritually? With you and you with them. Because verse 3, back in 1 Kings 11, it says this, and he had 700 wives. Like I said, he loved his women. Who were princesses and 300 concubines. And his wives, what did they do? Exactly what God said they would do. Turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart. In two verses, he says it twice. In three verses, he says it the same thing. They're going to turn away your heart. They're going to turn away your heart. They're going to turn, and they did exactly that. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God because he didn't date well. He didn't marry well. First, Second Corinthians six fourteen says, "Do not be bound together." With unbelievers, here's a life principle for you: the best way to stop a bad marriage is to stop bad dating. I know it seems so far off, and we're just hanging out, and, and you know who knows, and we're going to see where the wind blows, and how how our, how our, our hormones react, and, and you know all these other things. Listen, stop it. If you're not on the same page spiritually, stop it. Don't venture into it. Get out of it. If they're gonna not, not going to challenge you, if they're going to drag you down, stay away spiritually from that. I did not do relationships well for a long time. Well, in fact, I would say most of my relationships didn't end well for a long time. Until finally one day I'm flat on my face, with my face in the carpet realizing after another broken relationship, another broken dream, another broken promise, another all of that, and I'm down here as low as I can possibly get. And it's at that point that God said, and I can still remember it to this day, it's like, when are you going to look to me? When are you going to trust me with this? And so I did. And I turned that whole relationship thing over to him. I got a good mentor in my life and He spoke truth into my life. He said, you need to write out, you need to write out, what are your standards before the hormones kick in, before the interest kicks in, before the chemicals kick in? You need to write out. You need to control your emotions, your desires, and not let your desires and emotions control you. So I did. I wrote them out. I'm going to give them to you right now. You can write them down. You can keep them. You can tweak them, whatever. And this is what I said to myself, a commitment I made to myself. I will only date someone who is a dedicated follower of Christ. I wasn't going to get off course on that one. I'd been off course on that one. I had gotten off course because of that one. I will only date someone who is spirit-filled. That means it's not just they're going to go to church and they're going to read their Bible and they're going to call themselves a Christian, but I want somebody who literally is listening and oozing and demonstrating the Spirit of God and then will encourage me as well to have that same level of relationship with God. I will seek my parents' approval for those I date. Now, I know some of you teenagers are going gag right now, but listen, there's a lot of wisdom in that. You know why? Because they've made a lot of stupid mistakes that you're about to make. It's true. And they can bring a lot of wisdom to it. They can keep the emotions out and they can speak into it. Okay, say, I'm a parent. I listen, I'm an adult. I don't need parents. And then find somebody in your life that'll stick their crooked little finger in your face and tell you you're stupid and tell you you're wrong. And you need to start thinking instead of just start reacting. Somebody who'll call someone else and say, listen, you don't need to be with this person. Not that you're better than them, but I know that you are not a good combination. You need that person in your life. I will not settle for any relationship that does not build me up spiritually. It sounds very eye-centered because it was my relationship at this point. It was my life at this point, and I was going to set standards that hopefully I would also build them up. I will strive to keep my relationship morally pure. What does that look like for you? I know you're grown adults. I know we're people here. I know we have natural desires. Listen, I'm going to speak frankly here, so listen up. When sex enters too early, it messes everything up. I'm not saying sex messes it up, but what it does is it brings too much other stuff to the table that starts getting into manipulation and emotions and literally chemicals in the brain start being triggered in. And we respond differently, and so when we start bringing that into the equation too early, it creates dynamics that were never intended to be there. Be very aware of that. The second mistake is when you treat your marriage as an agreement. I agree with you. You agree with me. Okay, let's get let's get hitched. No, it's a covenant. It's a covenant relationship. It's not something that Mike Huckabee introduced back when he was the governor of Arkansas. We have covenant marriage in Arkansas now. This is something that was actually in the Scriptures. I pointed them out to you. I told you to circle the times that it mentions. In the very first verse that we read, verse 10, he talks about profaning the covenant of our fathers. See, he's referring back to, remember Mo, Moses? He gave these kind of rules, these laws, these principles about who you should marry. Listen, you are going against good, solid wisdom that's gone through the years. God gave that to Moses. Don't rewrite the moral code. Listen in on this. This is a covenant relationship. What's the difference? We treat them like contracts today. Contracts are kind of like my position, your position. Let's agree on something. You're going to cover this many bills. I'm going to cover that many bills. You're going to do this. I'm going to do that. We treat it as a contract. The contract's broken. Then we break the relationship. Contracts look out for the interest of my interest first. Covenants look out for the other person. Again, if you're giving 100% that only person can only give 35 right now, sometimes that's all you can give, and that other person is going to kick in the, the remainder, then let it be that. Sometimes it doesn't need to always stay like that, but sometimes you just get in situations like contracts are man-centered, covenants are God-centered. Contracts break when the terms are broken. Covenants are for a life. And notice what he does. He does it two times, and I had you underline it. He refers them back to the wife of your youth, that person that you married, that you entered into a covenant relationship with in verse 14. Your wife by contract. Your wife by agreement. Your wife by common marriage. I was even introduced not too long ago to the concept of an open marriage. Don't even want to get into that. We are rewriting what marriage is in our culture and we have no right to do that. Can I say that again? We have no right to rewrite what marriage is. It's a covenant relationship between a man and a woman. And I'm very specific about that because the Scripture is. I know I'm old-fashioned, fuddy-duddy. Something happens though. When it's just a linear thing, you can do whatever you want, however you want. It's just me. Hey, I have my rights. I should do what I want. We we kind of, again, we get into the whole rewriting thing. But whenever it is of God and it's a covenant, it's totally different. God comes into the picture and a beautiful thing happens in verse 15. I love verse 15. It's so skipped over. This needs to be your marriage verse for the week or your dating verse for for life. Did He, God, not make them one? I don't make myself one. I don't beat it out with Lori and gruel it out with Lori and make it eventually will become one. No, God made them one, verse 15, with the Spirit and their union. There's something that happens. It's a spiritual thing. It's not just a common law thing. It's not just a justice system thing. It's something spiritual that goes on here. And God designed it in a perfect place, in a perfect laboratory called the Garden of Eden. And He said it like this in Genesis 2.24. A man leaves father and mother and is united to his wife. And they become one flesh. That one flesh, that union, that uniting comes together. Listen, is, it, is your marriage just an agreement or is a covenant? And I'm not saying you just endure till the end. Because again, I don't want you to be in that second half of that statistic from the beginning where over half the marriages are not in an intimate love relationship. I want you to be that way. But it's going to take not a linear relationship, you with her, her with him. It's going to take something else, it's going to take a triangle. Not the unhealthy triangle that sometimes counselors refer to, but a triangle where God is at the apex and, and you are at the bottom. So Micah and Lori, here we are at the bottom. But the beautiful thing happens. The closer and closer we grow to God, guess what the effect is? The closer and closer we grow together. But the further and further we, I move away from God, the further and further we move away from each other. Can I remind you again who brings us together? The union that takes place, takes place when the Spirit makes them one. Makes them one. You know, again, in our culture, we're we're dealing with a whole rewriting of of, um, of what marriage is and we're debating that surprisingly so much even in our own backyard today. We're calling it civil rights or things like that, which is abusing the whole concept because it's still a moral issue. It's not a rights. I don't want to go there. Um, so I, I look back. I've been, I know this message was coming long before, long before anything was going on in the media and all that kind of stuff. I knew this message was coming. I've been thinking about over 25 years. I'm doing a lot of reflection on 25 years this year because it's my 25 years in ministry. And uh, and so what I did In preparation for this series and for this message is I went back over 25 years and looked at every marriage From paulo and julie the very first couple. I married high school friends of mine I married them in in, over in a church in rogers all the way through to the present And I counted up all the marriages that I could remember that I had on file that anything I wish I had done a better job keeping track of all that and then I just asked the question. How are they doing today? Some I know, some I know, don't know. Some are not even here. I'm not around. They're, they're in other parts of the state in other parts of, of the country or the world. And I, and I, and I kind of came back to, 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 to trying to wrestle down what I've had as convictions, core convictions about this whole topic of marriage. And these are some core convictions that I would, I would only marry and perform ceremonies of people if, and here's my standards, both people were fully devoted to following Christ. Both people, not one, that they were on the same track. I even do an inventory with them that speaks to the levels of compatibility on spirituality in their life. Number two, I make sure there's a covenant relationship to the church they were both a part of the church that I was pastoring. and They're not part of that church over there. They're a part of the church that I'm pastoring so I can know and be in their life and, and kind of keep tabs and work with them and be there for them and ask them how are they doing. This is a hard one. And I've eliminated a whole lot of marriages from this one. Keeping themselves sexually apart until marriage. That's really hard. I know it's 21st century. We're humans. We're like animals. We got we to gotta do that thing. Listen, listen you'll have a long time to figure out what body part goes where and all that kind of stuff. That's the fun thing. Save it. I already said it gets messy if you introduce it early. It gets really messy, convoluted. Don't. I know I'm old-fashioned, but don't. The last one is that I can get in their business in an intense way. In an intentional way, I, I will ask them, I'll get in their junk and I'll, and I want to talk about it. And I'll even say this at some point in there. I'll say, I'm going to try to break you up because if I can break you up, then you probably weren't very committed to start with. And so I'm literally going to, I'm going to ask them questions about where their weaknesses are. And I'm going to try to bolster that up. But at the same time, I'm going to say, listen, it may not be right for you to get married. Of the people that I've gone, and again, this is not scientific, this is totally personal, I can add up and do some rough math, and conservatively speaking, 77% of them are still together. Now, I am not advertising to do your wedding if you're married. Oh, if I do, Mike, 77% chance of better, we'll make it. No, 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 no. No, you make the marriage, I get to poke holes in it. All right, I get to poke holes in the relationship. It's, it's one of the most time-consuming elements of a pastor's role is to work into this. But here's what I want. I want to build into every one of them. That's why every one of those standards is there is because I want to see a union that is created and blessed by the Spirit of God. And I want that to be what marks the marriage. And so I have to back in and build systems for that. Number three, and I'm finished. Have an unguarded marriage. That's a mistake. There's nobody safe. <laughs> there is nobody out of the woods. There's nobody. Stu Weber said it like this getting married's easy. Staying married is difficult. Staying happily married is a fine art. There's as many divorces in the church as there are outside the church. So just joining a church will not fix the flaws. I've seen so many divorces come after two and three children. I know the stresses of the marriage, the stresses of the relationship, the, 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 the lack of focus on the relationship, and now we're focusing on children, and therefore this just becomes a, a means to an end. That's a dangerous thing. The marriage is for a lifetime. You get the kids for 18 years, hopefully no longer than that. Hopefully they're gone after that. I've seen marriages end a lot of them. these are, these are just my observations a lot of them end around 10 or 15 years. You think you're out of the woods at 10 or 15 years. I've seen my fair share in between 20 and 25 years. You're not you're never out of the woods. You must continue to guard your marriage. And how do you guard your marriage? But you guard yourself. He says it twice, verse 15, verse 16. Guard yourselves. Guard yourselves in your spirit. There is nobody free from this great disaster and diabolical working of Satan to tear apart a home. And at any point you think you're scot-free, you are setting yourself up for failure. What do you guard yourself? What's this to guard? He didn't even go into it. What am I supposed to guard against? This is mine. You write your own list. I give you two of them. One is guard yourself against attractions. There's lots of opportunity for your eyes and your heart to wander and to allow other attractions to come in. May's edition of GQ magazine. I'm not recommending you subscribe to it. It's not a church quarterly. GQ isn't. I'm just saying it's out there. This month's edition quotes from Eli Coleman, psychologist and director of the program of human sexuality at the University of Minnesota. When they talk about in this article um, about sexual addictions that are true of our day. He said, and they don't like all. Uh, not everyone likes the word sexual addiction, so they call it a hypersexuality. Says there are 19 million Americans who are addicted to this sexuality, in many forms and pixel forms or online forms. And there are apps out there that will feed it. There's an app out there. Many of you all know about it. Tinder, 26 million matches daily grinder 1.6 million active daily users 40 years ago 40 years ago this was not even a topic of conversation in counselors textbooks but it's it is now where you can get certified in it as a career we are in danger of losing homes in future homes through the addictions of these attractions. But let me mention another one that may subtly slip into your home. It's called distractions. Distractions that kind of come in, that slip in. The distractions of a dual income. Oh, we can get more, we can have more, we can do more, and end up what you do is you spend more and you get more and you are together less and you fight more. And again, you buy a bigger home and faster cars and bigger vacations hoping so you can have a better life for your kids. You take them and you do big, bigger things and do more things so your kids can have more opportunities. In reality, you're just distracted. Distracted from each other, from building each other up. It robs you. It robs your relationship with each other. It even robs your relationship with God. Distractions. We have ample number of them. I don't have time to read The two verses I wanted to close with, so you just kind of do it on your own, as your own meditation, verse 12 and verse 13, where he really gets down to it. He said, hey, realize that your broken covenant relationship with the wife of your youth, guess what? It is breaking, it is hindering our relationship. Your wedge broken relationship here, listen, it drives a wedge between your relationship I didn't even read the verse there, verse 16, where it talks about how God hates divorce. The most controversial verse in all of Malachi, God hates divorce. Listen, he didn't say God hates the divorced. He hates divorce. I grew up in a home of divorce. I know firsthand multiple times. And I can tell you right now, as a son of a divorced family with lots of divorce around it, I hate divorce. And I can tell you right now, I've never met a divorced person who would not tell you that they hate divorce. They hate it. Why? Why does God hate it? Why do I hate it? Why do they hate it? They hate it because it's the loss of a dream. It's the loss of a home. It was never intended to be that way. Man, we make mistakes. We get off track. We get distracted. We find other attractions. And an unguarded marriage... I want to pray. I want you to bow your heads. I want you to reflect for a moment. And I want you to hear what I'm going to say before I pray. That there's a direct correlation between your relationship with God and your relationship with your spouse if you're married today. And if you're not married, that's why those those... Standards of marriage are so, so, so important is because when you do get married, you want to be equally yoked with somebody of similar depth of faith. So you'll be praying for that other person now. The best way to reconcile a marriage is not to begin with the marriage. I'm going to stick my neck out and say the best way to reconcile a marriage is to begin with your relationship with God. Again, you grow in that relationship to God and you will grow in your relationship to one another. Father, You know our hearts. You know what distracts us. You know what we are attracted to. And Lord, You hate what it does. You hate it. You designed something so beautiful, so perfect, so right, such a reflection of even the Godhead. How could we want to rewrite what you have perfected? Are we going to one-up you, God? Or may we be? Men and women brought together in a union by God. And may these teenagers that fill this room today, as they pray and they think and they dream about one day, Mr. Wright, Mrs. Wright, Lord, may may you make them Mr. Wright and Mrs. Wright first. Lord, we thank you. And we want nothing more than to draw closer to you so that we can draw closer to the ones that we love. Jesus' name.